going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. Let's pray. Lord, now as we open up your word, I just ask that you would open up our hearts and open up our eyes, our understanding. Help us to see and to hear and to understand. Help us, as we look at a passage we've maybe heard many times before, help us to see what you want us to learn this morning. And pray that you would speak to each heart. Lord, I pray that we would listen and that we would respond. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. If you um, are kind of wondering about the sequence of things that happened through the Gospels, along with the the, hand, the uh, outline, there's this sheet in the back that has a timeline of all the resurrection events on one side with the scriptures, and there's some other things from the chronologies on the other side. And I, once... I found this and put it all in place. I found it to be a really great way of thinking through, okay, so this is why we say this is first and this is second. And it gives you all the scripture references so you could actually go through and read chronologically all the things that that we talk about when we think about Easter and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, When we were serving in Detroit, one of our elders was a Detroit City police officer, and uh, Mike and I would get together fairly regularly and have a cup of coffee or lunch and and he would tell me his police stories. And uh, it was one of those things where I'd just sit back and just in, enjoy hearing about what he did, what he was doing and the ways that he had helped people or the things that he'd had to face. And one of those, uh, one of those times we were talking and, and um, they had been called, he and his partner had been called to uh, the home of someone who had, who had passed away. And they went into the home and sure enough, the, the, the woman had, had passed on. And so they did their cursory inspection that they had to do, and and uh, then they called the coroner, and it was their job to wait until the coroner arrived and before they could actually leave the scene. And so they're waiting for the coroner to arrive, and the coroner's not at all in a hurry, and so they're waiting and waiting. And finally, the people in the, in the home said, listen, can we have our pastor come? We'd love to have him be here and pray with us. And uh, so sure enough, they, they, they said, yeah, go ahead, have, have the pastor come. Well, the pastor showed up with a whole bunch of people. And, of course, they're praying and stuff. And then now the coroner shows up. And now the house is full of people. And the coroner comes and they put the body on on the uh, the thing that they wheeled him out on. <laughs> the gurney, that's what it is. They put him on the gurney. They're wheeling her out. And they said, we'd like to stop and pray for her a second. And, of course, at that point, Mike kind of thinking, eh, I don't know about this. But what do you say? So they said, sure. So they all gathered around. They laid hands on the woman who had passed away. And they started praying. And if you know what happens with dead bodies, sometimes, for a period of time, after they're gone, they still twitch or move. So as they're praying... Suddenly, one of the arms goes like that and just twitches way out and comes back. And, of course, that just, they thought for sure that this woman had been mistakenly uh, said that she was dead or that she had come back from the dead. And and it was just, I mean, if you can imagine, going from no hope at all and now, oh, wow, she's back. And and then to discover, eh, no, she's not back. So they went from way down here up to here and then even further down on the other side. And, and the reason I tell that is that for the disciples, the emotions of the three days from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all the way to Sunday, I, I can't even imagine the depths to which they had gone. You know, when you have a family member or a close friend pass away, it's something that you feel deeply. And they had 
a, a, a teacher, a rabbi that they had followed and worked with and, and walked with and done all kinds of things with for, for three and a half years. And, and they thought he was the Messiah and that the Messiah was supposed to set up his kingdom and they had all these things planned for the Messiah and suddenly the Messiah is on a cross, he dies and now he's in a tomb. I mean, that's a, that's a long, long ways from, from the tomb to anything good at all. And John 20 begins to tell us what happens and how that all changes. So John chapter 20, we're going to look at the first few verses together. Remember, these guys are, this is hopeless. Uh, they're in despair. Uh, the women are going out to the tomb and they're going out because they just aren't convinced that the guys had done a good enough job with the embalming. And so they wanted to make sure that got taken care of. It was a rush job on, on the night when they put him in the tomb. And it says, verse 1 of chapter 20, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, and the one, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So this is Sunday morning early. The implication is that this is the start of something new. Okay, John loves to contrast light with dark. So while it's still dark, they're heading to the tomb. But but the thought is, but there's something really good coming. There's some good stuff coming just a, just a little bit down the road. Now the other gospels tell us that actually Mary was probably with a group of women who went to the tomb and they were wondering how they were going to get in and 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 how they were going to roll the stone away. And the stone was already rolled away, and they saw that. You know, look like Jesus wasn't there. So Mary went back to tell the disciples. The other women are still there. And the other women at that point then see a couple of angels who tell them, he's not here, he's risen, go tell his disciples. So they leave. In the meantime, Mary has arrived back at the back at the room where they're staying and tells Peter and John, hey, you know, someone took the body. Someone stole the body of Jesus. And so the three of them head back to the tomb. Okay, so that's that's kind of the sequence that's going on. And and when Mary came back to them, she's saying to them, Hey, you know that someone took took the body, someone emptied the tomb, he's just not there. And in her mind, there's two thoughts going on here. Either either the religious leaders have taken the body out and have decided to desecrate it further, or maybe just throw it in a common grave, or something other that she can't even put words to has happened. And so she wants to find Find the body of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we remember this. The resurrection was not something that she had in mind at all. Matter of fact, as you look at these people going to the tomb, then none of them are considering that, oh, well, maybe Jesus is alive. That's not their thought as they go to the tomb, any of them. None of them were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. So Peter and John take off, and they start for the tomb, verse 3. Now, both of them are running, but John arrives first um, and beats him there. He bends over and looks, and he sees that there's a bunch of stuff in the tomb. The, the, the linens are laying there, and the head piece, the piece that's over the head is laying there. Um, verse 6, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips lying of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. In a separate place. So Mary's gone back. She told them. They come running back. They obviously outran her because she's not with them at that point in time. 
Uh, John looks down in there. He doesn't go in. Peter comes running up finally, and he just goes right on in. And he sees something that he's never seen before. You know, they, we aren't totally, we don't know everything there is to know about how they actually buried Jesus. But it apparently was done in such a way that when they went, it was as if someone had taken the body out but left all of the wrappings exactly as if he was in it, except he wasn't. It was like the body got sucked out and nothing got moved. And the head piece, the part that covered the head, was actually laying somewhere else. So they look at this. And the interesting thing is, um, the disciple who reached there first, John, verse 8, also went inside. He saw and believed. It all came together for John. So in in verse 6, it says that Peter uh, went into the tomb. He saw and didn't mean anything to him. He couldn't understand. He had not captured yet. The idea that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Uh, different word is used when it says John saw, because really it means that he perceived and understood and believed. He understood what had happened here. So John believed, and this is a really interesting point. John believed Jesus rose from the dead before seeing Jesus risen from the dead. That's not true of anybody else. Everybody else who came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead saw him first. So Mary saw him first, and some of the others saw him first before they believed. But John saw just the evidence in the tomb and said, I believe. He rose from the dead. Um, So here they are. John believes and sees what what has happened there. Um, And then they, they go back. They go back to, to, the, to the room that they're all sharing. It says in some translations they went back to their homes, but we're not to understand that as them having homes up in Galilee and homes in Jerusalem both. And it's probably they returned, most people think, to the upper room. They might have just said, listen, can we continue to, to use this room until we all head back to Galilee? So that's the, probably the strongest possibility of that. But again, one of the things we get from this is that John is telling us the story of the resurrection of Jesus through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. That's who he's using as his eyewitness. That's why Mary's the one that's mentioned right from verse 1 all through. And we'll see her in the next set of verses as we continue. But I love the, the fact that the two disciples go running out there. One comes out and goes, yeah, this is awesome. And the other guy goes, eh, well, we don't know. And they both go back. Let's just pause for an implication here. Um, when you think about Mary Magdalene, there's a lot of things we know about her. And, and we've already saw some in, in the book of Mark, we read in the early section, she had been delivered of seven demons. And, and here's Mary's commitment and devotion to the Lord comes through in all of the Gospels. You will not find Mary Magdalene mentioned apart from Christ. She's always mentioned in some kind of context in which Jesus is there. And so that's one of the things that you see about her. She was with him in Galilee. She traveled with him. She was at the cross. She was at his burial. And she was the first one to meet him after the resurrection. And all four Gospels tell us about Mary Magdalene and the resurrection. And the earliest mention of Mary um, is in the book of Luke. And so Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And then look at verse 2. And also some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women who were helping to support them out of their own means. And so we have a a group of women who traveled with Jesus and the disciples uh, for a good period of the time, especially towards the end of his ministry, but probably even longer than that. And, And we hear there about Mary. Mary has been healed of seven demons, and she helps to support Jesus out of out of her own means. And that's why some people say she, all of these women seem like they were women who had resources because they were able to share those resources, those, those financial things with uh, with the disciples and Jesus so they could continue to minister. Um, but I just love the fact that Jesus cast out demons and her response to being set free from that was to serve and honor Jesus Christ. That's it. She signed up. She signed up for, okay, let's go. Where, where are we going? What are we going to do? I want to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what she did. Everywhere you read her name, you're going to find Jesus. And that's exactly what she did. She followed. She worked. She walked alongside of all, all the disciples and, and with Christ himself. Now, maybe you've heard the statement, behind every good man, there's a surprised mother-in-law. Certainly in my case. <clears throat> the saying probably is better stated as, behind every good man, there's a good woman. Well, behind Jesus and all of the work that he did with his disciples, there was a group of women who did some amazing things in supplying all of the needs. That's the thing that we got to remember. They were the ones that took care of the financial things that needed to be taken care of. If they had to stay somewhere or if food had to be brought or whatever had to be taken care of, it was coming out of the resources that these women had brought along. And so <clears throat> Jesus has set Mary free from the horrors of demon possession. And her response, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to serve Jesus. There's a devotion and there's a commitment on Mary's part that is so strong. And her sh- devotion and her commitment took her to the very foot of the cross where she's there watching and seeing what happened to Jesus. She's not too concerned about the fact that she might, be, might get caught and thrown in prison herself. She's She's there witnessing what happened to her master and her teacher. So that just love that commitment on her part. And as I think about what Jesus did for Mary, one of the things that made me stop and think this week just by way of application was, what has Jesus done for me this week? What has he done for you? In what ways have you seen his hand at work? And, and, and sometimes we just get so busy, we're moving along, and we just don't stop and think about what, what is going on. What have we seen Jesus do? Maybe it's that, that uh, we've been involved in something and we've sensed God's forgiveness as we realized the Spirit speaking to us that we needed to confess and be restored. Maybe we see God's work as, as we've had a difficult relationship with someone and, and as we've said, Lord, help, He has. And there's been a smoothing over of that situation. We stop and think about the fact that we've been forgiven. And it's not just our actions, but it's our attitudes and our words and our thoughts and even our motives that the Lord can work on and, and has worked on. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to a God who wants to work on 
all of those areas in our lives. He's not just interested in, in my behavior. Of course, that's important. But he wants the motives behind my behavior and, and my thought life and the words that come out in heated moments, all of those to be under his control. And Mary's a great example of someone who came along and Jesus saved her out of horrible darkness, incredible oppression. And the result of that in her life was following Christ, serving Christ. There's an old, old song I remember singing as a kid in Sunday school. After all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how could I do less than give him my best and live for him completely? After all, he's done for me. And, you know, I remember singing that when I was a kid and didn't really think much about it. And as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, those are really pretty words, but do they mean something to me? Yeah, I agree. He's done incredible things, starting with dying for me. And then that second line just hit me. How am I responding to what Christ has done for me? It isn't just about saying pretty words. So when you have that fight with your husband or your wife, your commitment to Jesus Christ means that you will own up to what you have said and what you have done. And you will ask forgiveness from the Lord first and then from your spouse. And then you say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? When your teenager crosses the line and they're seriously disobeying and Your commitment to Jesus means that you're not just going to turn around and pretend it didn't happen. You're going to gently help them to be responsible for what they've done or what they've said. You're not going to back down even though it feels like it's the hardest thing in the world. And you gently continue to hold them accountable. And you stand firm and love them like crazy as you help them to see that this is not something that is acceptable. What about that job that you absolutely hate? You ever had a job that you hated? Had a few of those. <clears throat> what do we do with something like that? Man, Lord, I gotta go there every day. Well, if we can say, Lord, I hate this job, would you give me something else, please? Uh, in the meantime, I'm at this job I don't like and don't enjoy. Help me to have the attitude that I should have so that the people around me don't just see someone who's just nasty and grumbling all the time. Give me something new, Lord. I'm asking for that. But until such time as you do, help me to be what you want me to be in this situation. Help my words to be words that you would want me to say. And help me to be an encouragement even in this dismal place where I work. And believe me, I know What it's like to work in a place is just really horrible. But until God opens up that door and gives something else, sometimes we just have to keep on saying, okay, Lord, give me the words, help my attitude. What about if you're a student? And I remember being in Bible college and many times thinking, you know, I'm studying Bible all week long, so I don't need to take this extra time to have devotions or spend time with God. Or, you know what, if I don't have to go to church, maybe, maybe I'll just say it's okay. You know, it, it, it's, I've got enough Bible all week long. I've studied theology all week. And yet one of those things that uh, I had to learn as time went on was that coming together wasn't about the fact that I'd put time in already. 
I mean, together in a situation with other believers was about lifting the Lord up and seeking to honor Him and seeking to worship Him together with other people who were also worshiping Him. And you know, all of that comes out of devotion and commitment, and Mary is a really great example of someone who had that kind of commitment. Let's go on to verse 10. So they've been at the tomb there, and um, the disciples head back home. But now Mary is still there. Okay, Mary's not going home yet. She hasn't gotten any answers to this empty tomb yet. So Mary, outside the tomb crying, verse 11, And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels. Now, the thing, you know, again, my mind gets going, all right, so the two, the ladies saw the angels, they disappeared, Peter and John didn't see them, and now they're gone, and, and you know, Mary gets to see them. Anyway, there's two angels there who kind of coming and going as God wants them to. <laughs> Seated where Jesus' body had been, at one at the head and one at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And she says, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. And so you, you get the sense of love and, and devotion that comes through as Mary is Mary's still standing there. Mary's still weeping. The other guys have kind of given up. I think John knows what's happened, so he's okay with it. And Peter doesn't know, and so they they head back. But Mary's not going anywhere. She hasn't gotten any answers to to where the body is. And then she sees the two angels, and you know the two angels say, "What are you What are you crying about?" And she answers, "Well, you know, they took the Lord away." Now. It's interesting what they said to her, isn't it? They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And it's almost as if they're they're coming in with an introduction of, there really is no reason for tears in this place today. It's almost as if they're saying, listen, uh, you need to understand, (laughs) this is going to turn out way differently than what you think right now. Her answer is still totally focused on the Lord. He's not here. I don't know where he is. I don't know where they put him. And so she's very, very much concerned about that. She saw Lazarus was raised from the tomb. So resurrection was something she's aware of. But again, as we mentioned on Friday night, Raising someone else from the dead is one thing. Raising yourself from the dead, that's a whole nother matter. Totally different. And that's the part that she's kind of hung up on here. So verse 14 then says, At this point she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And there's a lot of speculation as to why or why not. Part of it is he's got a resurrected body now, not, not the body that had been beaten and bruised and was bleeding. The other thing is it's possible that she was just full of tears and wasn't seeing anything or anybody very clearly. And Jesus says in verse 15, Woman, he said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? So again, Jesus in a very respectful statement. It wasn't a, you know, woman, you idiot kind of statement. That's not what's being said here. It's, it's much more respectful. It's more like, dear woman, what are you going through? What's going on with you? Why are you hurting so much? That's the way that uh, that this was said. Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And of course, Mary then responds, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. (laughs) 
Now stop and think about this. She's going to carry Jesus by herself somewhere else if, if actually she can get the body from wherever the gardener has put him. And, and again, you think about those things and you say, this woman is incredibly devoted to the Lord. Think of what she's saying here. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, just her name. And saying her name, she recognized who this was. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And I'm told that this is much more personal than that and much stronger than that. That it really means my teacher. My teacher. I love the fact that Jesus calls her by name. She responds, and it kind of reminds us of the fact that Jesus is the shepherd who knows his sheep, and they know his voice. Verse 17, Jesus said, because uh, at this point she's apparently wrapped her arms around him. She's knelt at his feet, and just she's hanging on to his feet. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so he says, don't hold on to me. Some translations say, don't touch me. But really the thought seems much more to be, don't hang on to me. I'm not going anywhere. Okay? It's not my time to go back yet. So you don't have to cling to me as if I'm going to disappear. All right, so that seemed to be more the thought rather than don't touch me. Because he was able to be touched all the rest of the time, the 40 days that he, that he was still on earth before he ascended. And so here, here he is saying, hey, you know, don't, don't hang on to me. It's going to be okay. I'm not going anywhere. It's not my time to ascend. He, is, he does say, I'm returning to my father and your father. And, and it's, it's almost you're wondering, okay, so are you going to run up there real quick and come back? And the thought seems to be much more that what he is saying is, the countdown has started for my ascension. I am going to be returning. Not today necessarily, but I am going to be returning to your, to, to my father and your father. And again, think about all the things Jesus knows. Well, I'm gonna, I am gonna leave, but I'm not leaving them alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will take up residence in them. And, um, J.D. Greer said one time, the whole idea that Jesus beside you is nowhere near is the Holy Spirit in you. Because Jesus beside you can only be with one group of people at a time. The Holy Spirit can be with absolutely every believer in the world. At all times. And so that's, uh, one of those things that, and they don't know this yet, but <clears throat> but Jesus does. So she went to the disciples with the news and said, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. I've been with him. <clears throat> but the reality is, as we saw in the book of Mark, they didn't believe her. Here she comes and says, hey, there's been a resurrection. Jesus is alive. Um and again, you wonder, you wonder the dynamics of all those things, and why didn't John step up and say, hey, yeah, I, you know, this is what I saw, and this is why I believe. But I want to go back to the two questions <clears throat> that Mary, that Jesus asked Mary. Why are you crying? And who are you looking for? And on one level, is it possible that this is a mild kind of rebuke? 
Um, is he saying to her, why are you crying? Don't you remember all those times that I said I was going to die, I was going to be gone, and I would come back? Um, don't you remember? Look in that empty tomb. That should jar some thoughts for you. And it's possible that that's what the Lord was saying. But if he was doing that, it was in a very, very gentle way that he was doing it. But on one level, he says, why are you crying? Well, you know, you're standing here at the empty tomb. You know what I've said in the past. So maybe be puzzled and try to figure this out. But don't be, don't be crying without hope, I think is the kind of idea there. And then the second one, who? So the first one is, why are you crying? The second question was, who is it that you're looking for? And, and this really got me thinking. Because was she thinking about... Okay, I would love to have the Messiah who God promised, or was she saying, wait a minute here, we always thought the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to set up his kingdom, and so he needs to kick the Romans out, and let's get going with this thing. Which of those two was she wanting? Did she want the Messiah of the Bible clearly presented and promised, or did she want the Messiah that she wanted? And it's interesting that, that Jesus puts it in that way. Do you really want the Messiah God has promised, or is it that you just want what you want? And and at one level, he's saying, Mary, it's time to stop. So stop, Mary, think. And in Matthew one twenty one, it says this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so that's that's one thing as you're thinking about the Messiah and you're thinking about the prophecies about the Messiah and the things that have been said already about the Messiah. It was, he's going to be given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 22 it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's going to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from sins. He's going to be called Emmanuel because God is with us. So the Messiah was to come and was to give us the opportunity to have a relationship with God that we couldn't have any other way. And as I was thinking through that, I came across this. Um, for sins to be forgiven all the way through the Old Testament, <clears throat> certain things were required. A sacrifice was always necessary. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness. All through the Old Testament, if sin was involved, then there needed to be a sacrifice of atonement. And so, always necessary was a sacrifice. Well, Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice of atonement was Jesus. Not only was he the perfect sacrifice of atonement, was the last sacrifice of atonement needed. When Jesus came and shed his blood, no more blood needed to be shed. That was it. It was sufficient for everyone all time. And when we come to Christ, we come because of the blood that was shed, which forgives our sins. We put our faith and trust in him. We're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that covers all of it. And it's it's a one-time deal. Jesus died one time for all people, for all sin. And when we come to Him, then He takes our sin and we 
receive the righteousness of Christ. Now Mary did not recognize Jesus at first. She was blinded by her grief. She could see him, but didn't really expect to see a risen Lord. But when he spoke her name, suddenly, boom, she knew it was Jesus. I wonder, how many times do we expect to hear from Jesus or hear his word? Do we listen? Or do we just go merrily along our way, letting all kinds of other voices fill our hearts and our minds? I find that very challenging personally because it is so easy to get busy and do things and listen to this and watch this and read this. And there is that sense sometimes in my own life where I have to say, okay, I need, I need to stop. I need to hear. And, of course, that comes by being in God's Word and spending time with Him. And that's why we have His Word, and that's why we have the Holy Spirit. And as we look into His Word, and as we ask the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, and as we submit to Him as He leads us and guides us each day, that's when we begin to say, okay, all right, I'm hearing. Again, I'm not saying that you're going to hear an audible voice or see something written in the stars, but many times it's just the quiet sense as you've read a passage that, oh, I get it. That's for me. And so I just, I just want to challenge you on that. Do, we, do you listen? Do I listen? We, we need to be listening. Coming together, worshiping, singing, listening together to God's Word. That's, that's important, but this is, this is more than that. Or it should be more than that. When we come to church, it should be with an expectant attitude. I want to hear from God today. I want to hear from Him. It, it, we should also be thinking, okay, is it going to be, am I going to hear from Him in Sunday school or one of the songs that are found that we're singing that come out of the, the, the principles or the, God's Word is going to touch me in some special way. Maybe verses that are read. Maybe through the sermon I'm going to hear God. We come with that expectation. And when we do, many times we hear God saying to our hearts, Mark, this is for you. Now the question is, when we hear, will we obey? It's one thing to say, I want to hear, I want to listen, I want to, I want to be involved in, in expecting God to speak to me. But part of that has to be, I want to hear so that I can do what God is asking me to do. So let me just challenge you this week. See if you can't set aside some time when, when you will just say, okay, God, I just want to hear from you. I just want to hear from you. Sometimes for me it's listening to God's Word on tape, or sometimes I'll, I'll look up uh, a sermon that I especially want to listen to on a particular thing, and, and I will listen and try to hear what God is saying to me through, through that other speaker as they share through God's Word. And what do you take away from all of this? What do we take away? Why did Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene first? That is one of the cool, for me, one of the coolest things. And quite honestly, Mary Magdalene in her own culture was not someone who was appreciated or respected or cared about at all. The Jewish culture of the day looked down on women generally and certain women even more so. They were not even considered reliable witnesses in court. And yet Jesus spoke and treated Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well and any other woman that he ran into. There was a certain sense 
of respect and dignity with which he spoke to all the women that he came in contact with. And Mary had seven demons. And if you've ever been involved with somebody who is just everything they've ever done or said is so evil that you wonder what's going on on a spiritual level. I've had that happen just a couple of times. And Mary, seven demons possessed her. And the Lord came along and took that all away. And she believed in, in him as her Messiah, as her teacher. She was made totally clean, totally brand new. And all the oppression and darkness in her life is gone. Totally gone. But she was still, stop thinking about culturally. If you were a Jewish person trying to convince the Jewish men of the time, you would not have written Mary as the first one to have seen Jesus. You wouldn't have planned it this way. You just wouldn't do it. And that's what I love about Jesus in the Gospels. Is he's going to do what needs to be done, and he's going to say things as he, as he says it. And as he has Mary be the first one to see him, what's he saying? Mary has been forgiven, she's my follower, and that she is going to be my witness. And then there are others as well that then became witnesses. But you know, I was thinking about ourselves in all of this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. He's writing to the church there and he says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. So he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's saying, Hey, you know what? You guys remember? You guys, <laughs> there was not a whole lot of, uh, you know, the, the upper crust of society in your midst when God chose you. You weren't the wisest and you weren't the wealthiest. Verse 27, he says, Instead, God chose things of the, the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying that that whoever the person is, they could be the most foolish person on earth, they could be the most powerless person on earth, but when Christ comes in and changes them, that changes everything. They are no longer foolish and powerless and, and, and full of shame. Verse 28, God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. Mary Magdalene would have fit in that category easily in that first century. God chose the things that are despised of the world, things that are counted as nothing, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So God took Disciples, men and women, and, and he used people that the rest of the world would have just thrown away or given up on. Or, and he said, I'm going to turn you, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to bless you. And see, God seeks out the broken and the needy, the desperate, the wounded. He, that's who he works with. Verse 29, he says, as a result... No one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God, or he justified us, declared us clean and holy with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. 
That's what Christ did. That's why he came. Therefore, he says in verse 31, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, (laughs) boast only about the Lord. Tell people how amazing Jesus is and what wonderful things he's done in your life. And if you look at Mary Magdalene, that's what she does. She's talking about Christ. She's focused on Christ. She wants people to know, hey, someone took him. Well, no, actually, you need to know, guys, he's risen. I saw him. I held on to his feet. He's here. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. You know, if we were going to start a movement to change the world, would we have done it this way? No, but that's not us. God chose the weak and the foolish and those that were not strong and those that weren't noble, those that weren't exalted in their own selves. And he said, hey, I'm going to change the world using you. Paul tells us that it's not by works. He wants to change the world by changing the hearts of people who then go out and help other people to see Christ. So you want to kind of put it in a sentence for me. You can say, God chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. God chooses... There you go. Thanks, Sarah. God chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised, the wounded, the broken. Keep going any way you want to. Why? Why does he do it that way? Because then God gets the credit, not man. God gets the credit for Mary Magdalene. God gets the credit for Peter, for John Mark, for it doesn't matter who it was. God gets the credit. It wasn't that they were so great and so wonderful that God chose them. No, they were broken just like we are. They were, they were all used up, some of them, and, and Christ comes along and says, I want to see you come and follow me. Jesus chose Mary Magdalene person who nobody else would have picked because she was foolish and weak and vulnerable and all of those things and but she was willing to say yes i will follow christ and on one level that's the good news isn't it if god can take mary magdalene and change her and make her into something so wondrous and amazing think of what he can do with us just think of what he can do i'm just as messed up as mary So he can help me if he helped her. And that's all of us. We have all gone through, and we all have those kinds of wounds and brokenness. And yet God says, you know what? It isn't about your brokenness. It isn't about your woundedness. It's about my forgiveness and my Holy Spirit living in you and the ability for you to move out and go in the direction that I'm leading you. And that's why I love... That John presents the resurrection of Christ through the eyes of Mary. Probably of all the disciples, she was the least likely. (laughs) And yet here she is, the first one to see Jesus. And what does she do? Commitment to follow Christ. There's a song that I want us to end with in just a minute here, but the... The verses of this song, just a couple of them, really struck me as a, as a great prayer. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His power and love controlling all I do and say. 
Would that change my life if I sought to live each day with that in mind? Second one, may the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. And then the last verse, may his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win and may they forget the channel seeing only him. That should be our, our prayers. We have friends and co-workers and family members who don't know the Lord. It's, Lord, I'd love to see them come to you, but you do it. You want to use me in some way? Great, but, but you do it. You work. Help me to be the channel. I want them to see you. May this be our prayer as we think through the wonder of the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came, you suffered, you died, and that you did that for us. What an incredible, incredible thing. Thank you for the examples that you gave us here in your word. We think of Mary, and what an amazing, wonderful thing it was that you chose her and used her in such a precious way. We ask, Lord, that as we leave this place today, we would say, okay, Lord, God, use me, whatever it takes. I want to be used by you. We ask these things in your name.